everybody, and welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership Series. I'm Scott Miller, and I serve as your weekly host and interviewer. For those of you who've joined us in previous interviews, we're now into strongly into our second year. We've had some amazing guests join us for On Leadership. If you can see the, the set behind me, we have had everyone from David Sibbett on Visual Leaders, General McChrystal, who authored Team of Teams, Doris Kearns Goodwin, Team of Rivals, Eric Barker, Barking Up the Wrong Tree. What an amazing interview. Susan Kane from Quiet. Liz Wiseman, The Multipliers. Stephen M. R. Covey on The Speed of Trust. Chris McChesney on The Four Disciplines. Seth Godin on his 10 books. Daniel Pink, it's been an amazing ride. We have some great guests planned for you coming up in the future weeks, so we hope that you'll subscribe to the On Leadership series. It is now the fastest growing and largest subscription newsletter in the world, where every week we interview a different guest. Some weeks it's a CEO, other weeks it's a best-selling author, business titan, social scientist, leadership expert. Everybody we invite on has a common theme. They've had some reps. They've paid the price to articulate a point of view that will no doubt improve everybody's leadership competency. Whether it's the leader of your family, whether it's the leader of your division or team, perhaps it's the leader of your own life. We try to build a great interview so that you take away a nugget every week. Now, if you haven't subscribed, do so by visiting franklincovey.com. Click on the On Leadership button and subscribe. It's complimentary. Comes out every Tuesday morning around 6 a.m. Eastern time via email. We'd love to have you forward on the link to all of your friends, family, colleagues. Anybody can subscribe. We'd love to have you join the On Leadership series. And I tell you, today's guest is going to rock your world. This is a man who, with his co-author, knows a thing about leadership. In fact, Leif Babin is our guest today, the co-author of the number one New York Times book, Extreme Ownership, How U.S. Navy SEALs Lead and Win. Leif, welcome to On Leadership. Thanks, Scott. Great to be on with you. Leif, such an honor to have you here. First, I want to make sure that we take an appropriate moment and on behalf of our chairman, our board, the thousands of Franklin Covey Associates around the world, the tens of thousands of clients, organizations, and the millions of people who are our clients, and everybody else in between, U.S. citizens, all of the international citizens, thank you for your service to our country. You can't help but read this book and have a, uh, an enlightened sense of what it means to be a member of the um, U.S. military, whether you're serving in peacetime or wartime. I want to thank you and your colleagues that have preserved freedom, democracy around the world, brought stability in places where you know, they had no sense for that. You've lost comrades and friends. You speak about it in the book. I want to give you a sincere reminder of how much you are appreciated and your family as well for everybody who's joining today. Thank you again for your service. That means a lot, Scott. Thank you so much for that. Uh, I certainly was able to serve with some extraordinary people, and, and it was a real honor for me to, to serve in the U.S. military, and I certainly do it all over again in a heartbeat, but uh, thank you. Leif, your book uh, brings to light, with your co-author, Jocko, uh, the horrors of war, right? I mean, you, you, you've written a book that is you know, Pentagon-approved. You speak very charitably about all of your colleagues in the book that perhaps either lost their lives or were wounded. Uh, you wrote a book that is an amazing leadership manual, and I know a, a thing or two about that. Having been in the leadership business for 25 years myself, I've read a few books, a few thousand books, authored a few myself. 
We invited you on because your book is arguably one of the most visceral but practical leadership books I've ever encountered. I wonder if you would just take a few moments before we get into the book and talk a bit about your journey as a Navy SEAL and now I would argue a, a renowned, recognized leadership expert, coach, teacher, facilitator. Talk a bit about how you came to write this book and why do you think it's done so amazingly well? That's a, it's a great question, Scott. I, I think for, for me, we were incredibly humbled by the, the combat leadership lessons that, that we learned. And we, we talk about humility is the most important quality in the leader. And I, I, I thought that I was a fairly humble guy uh, when, before I actually went into combat. Uh, but we came back from those difficult days in Ramadi Iraq in 2006, the Battle of Ramadi, we call it now, and just with, with some incredible humility, just understanding just how difficult, just how dangerous combat is, and just how hard it is as, as a leader to be in that position. So Jocko and I both took over training uh, for the, for the, the uh, West Coast SEAL teams uh, from after that deployment, and we passed on the lessons learned to the next generation of SEAL leaders. Uh, and that's what I tried to instill in them was just to try to prepare them for those difficulties of real actual combat situations. And it provided an extraordinary leadership laboratory as we ran training to see the same, the same scenarios over and over again, difficult, challenging uh, SEAL training scenarios where we put different leaders, platoon commanders, task unit commanders, platoon chiefs in these, these roles. And you could clearly see what worked and what didn't work. And that's really the same thing we do now in the business world uh, through Echelon Front, much like you guys do at, at uh, Franklin Covey, where you get to see different leaders in different uh, different scenarios, and you can really, really clearly outline what works and what doesn't work. And so we just tried to write the book to uh, that reflected that humility, uh, that talked about the mistakes that we made, what we learned from them, so that others can hopefully not have to make those mistakes and not have to learn the hard way, the way I did. Leif, it's an honor to have you on today. I'll often have uh, viewers or clients email me and say, why are you bringing on competitors onto your, onto your show? Well, we are in a very abundant company, right? Part of Dr. Covey's legacy was having an abundance mentality. So we're in the business of developing great leaders just like you. So I'm delighted to talk about your company today, Echelon Front, and uh, we'll give people more insight about that toward the end. If I ask you some questions you can't answer, I'm quite certain you'll say pass on it. But first, tell me, how many years were you a member of the Navy SEAL team? I was in the SEAL teams for about nine years, uh, 13 years total in the Navy. I grew up in East Texas, uh, went to the Naval Academy, uh, spent four years there. And that's where I was first exposed to Dr. Covey and seven habits of, of highly effective people. That was part of our training, uh, leadership training curriculum at the Naval Academy. Uh, so it, it's uh, it's great to, great to be a part of this, real honor to be a part of uh, of this podcast with you, Scott, and uh, love what you're doing here with On Leadership. Uh, certainly a real fan of what you guys do uh, at Franklin Covey. Like you guys, we, we care about leadership. We care about helping leaders get better. Uh, and in uh, any way, shape, or form, uh, we're happy to do that. So uh, I, I, I graduated from the Naval Academy in 1998, and I went to the service fleet. I was not selected to be a SEAL out of the Naval Academy as what is it was my dream. It's what I wanted to do, uh, but but I didn't get to follow that path. They only took 15, uh, 15 guys out of our, our class of, of 900, and uh, I wasn't one of those 15. So I spent a couple of years on, on surface ships. Uh, three and a half years later, I, I got a chance to go to BUDS, which is our, the basic uh, underwater demolition SEAL training program for uh, 
the SEAL teams. And once I graduated from that, uh, I went and spent uh, those nine years in the SEAL teams, did three combat deployments to Iraq. Uh, and I ran, uh, I was a leadership instructor for every SEAL leader graduating uh, from our, our training pipeline, the young SEAL officers that were graduating from that for, for two years. Uh, and that was extraordinary. I loved it. I uh, love to pass those lessons on. And, and that's what we love about what we do now is helping leaders get better, helping them to solve problems with leadership. Uh, Leif, are you able to disclose at any given time how many people are have achieved the status of Navy SEAL? Sure. I mean, it's, it's certainly not, not classified. We have about a 70 to 80% attrition rate on average from our, our basic training program, BUDS, as I mentioned. So we, we, we started my class with 193 guys, graduated 44 uh, at, at the end of that. And only 18 of those 44, uh, which I was fortunate enough to, to be a part of, were, were originals who had started with the 193 and made it through in, in one shot without getting rolled back, without getting injured, um, those, those sort of things. So it's a, it's a tough training program. Uh, at any one time, I think we have, uh, those numbers fluctuate a little bit, but I think we have about 3,500 3, active duty I see. SEALs I see. in total. Uh, and a few hundred reservists, uh, but it's a fairly small, small force. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, it's, I spent all of my time on the West Coast SEAL team. So the guys on the East Coast would call us Hollywood SEALs. <laughs> so let's get into the book because uh, it's like I mentioned earlier, an invaluable leadership practical guidebook. The, the, built, the book is really built around your and your co-author Jocko's experience um, as a SEAL in Iraq in the, what you call the Battle of Ramadi. And each chapter has a very similar structure. It has three parts in each chapter. The first is a fairly visceral, true, almost moment-by-moment -moment account of the leadership experience that you and your co-author had as a SEAL with your team embedded in you know, uh, uh, the other armed forces groups as well as some Iraqi troops. You share very heartfelt and, and sort of you know, blood-pumping stories around real life and death experiences. And then the next part of the chapter, you illuminate what was the leadership principle that you or your co-author either exhibited or in some cases you failed to exhibit. You're quite vulnerable and authentic about when you failed to do it. And then I think the best part of the book is the business application, at least best in terms of relatability. Because in your business, Echelon Front, you're out coaching people, real leaders at all levels of organizations, and you take the military leadership experience, the principle, and you bring it to life in a real life disguised business setting, and they're viscerally true. Like, you know, on the back of the um, Harvard Business Review, in every edition they have these sort of fictional stories of how some of the concepts are applied. Yours is better than that because A, they're true, and it's so, I think, enlightening to see how uber relevant these military principles are into real life business Leadership. I love this structure of the book. It's captivating and gripping and practical. Uh, you're a great writer. So is your author. Did you have some coaching on that? How did you come to the, what I think is a genius structure of your book? Well, thank you, Scott. I, I, uh, I think people took a look at me and, 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 and Jocko and, and thought initially that we probably didn't know how to write our names, much less uh, author a book. So every single person said you had to use a, a ghost writer and this is the way you got to go. In fact, we, we put together a proposal. Uh, we, the first five publishing uh, publishers we sent it to actually turned it down. Uh, and some it of them is. had insisted, well, no, you actually have to use a writer. We said we, we weren't going to do that. We're going to write it ourselves. Uh, 
uh, and it was just something that, uh, that that we felt passionate about. We needed to control the story. We needed to actually tell this in, in a, a humble way. Uh, I, I'd seen that actually happen with other SEAL teammates of mine, frankly, who sat down and told their stories uh, to an author and kind yeah. of lost control of that story. Yeah. Uh, and, and we didn't want to. We didn't want to do that. We want to make sure that that these principles were told. That we talked about them in a way that that was real and in the way that that. Uh, we experience them uh, and what we actually learn from that and, and be that harsh critic of ourselves so that others, others can learn from that. So that's really, you know, for us, it was just about a hands-on practical way to talk about these are, these are real problems. And, and I think something you pointed out is, is interesting there, Scott, the, so many people, when, when we first, when I left the Navy in, in 2011, I left active duty and Jocko had retired uh, just a, a few months prior to, prior to, to me leaving, uh, and we, we were doing this, we launched our company, Echelon Front. A lot of people would ask us, how do you translate the lessons that you learn from combat to the business world? And they don't really ask us that anymore now, now that they've read Extreme Ownership because yeah. right. they, it, it's clear, right? Leadership is leadership is leadership. And the same problems that units are going to encounter on the battlefield are the same problems that, uh, that, that a company is dealing with, that, that an organization is dealing with in the civilian world. And it's, it's about trying to get a diverse group of people to, to with different perspectives and different worldviews and different agendas uh, and, and, and egos at play to, to work together as a team, mutually supporting one another to accomplish the mission. Uh, and that's what leadership is, it's, uh, and it applies across the, the spectrum. And so we just felt like that was the, the, the best way to, to tell the story. I, I was connected with some, some close friends of mine who uh, are, are very successful business leaders who, who liked that format, encouraged the format, helped us really refine that. Uh, and that was uh, super useful for us. We did, we did bring in some help to help us on the editing side of things, uh, but we certainly uh, wanted, to, wanted to write this thing ourselves and control that, that narrative. I'm very proud that, uh, that we did it that way. Well, your, your voice and your co-author's voice comes through so viscerally in every word in the book. Let's talk first about the concept of extreme ownership. Would you just give us a couple of minutes on why that became the central theme? It's so viscerally relevant once you read the book. But talk a bit about why that was the the organizing theme for the book. It's really just the, it's the foundation upon which everything else is, is built. It's a mindset and an attitude. And without this, uh, you, you're never going to actually do what you need to do to, to solve problems and win. And extreme ownership just simply means that there's no one else to blame. There are no excuses. You've got to own everything in your world and not just what you're responsible for, you have to own every single thing that impacts your mission. And I think once leaders recognize that this is all on me, then I'm gonna actually have to do the hard work to, to, to get the team where they need to go, to train people, to mentor people, uh, to, to actually solve problems. And it's, it's, it's really, it's, it's a simple concept. We say simple, not easy. It, it's not difficult. This is not deep theory. Uh, it's not, not a hard concept to understand, yet it's incredibly difficult to apply in real life because our human condition, uh, there's just something in our, our psyche that wants us uh, to, to make excuses, point fingers, cast blame. And when you do that, problems never get solved. So when, when, when the leader sets a tone of, uh, of I own this, I'm responsible, and we're going to do everything in our power to actually solve these problems, then you actually build a culture within the team where you solve problems and win. And that was the, the fundamental key principle that we've seen. Successful units in the military, they had that. The best leaders in the military, they had that. The best leaders to, to the business in the business world that we've worked with, and we work with hundreds of leaders across the, the full spectrum uh, of industries now, uh, 
we see the same thing. They have this concept, uh, this mindset and attitude of extreme ownership. They're going to solve problems. They're going to get things done. Uh, they're not going to cast blame and make excuses so that the problems never get solved. And late to clarify that, and this is a theme that runs throughout every story in the book and every chapter, it isn't that every leader has to do everything, right? That's micromanagement. It's that the leader has to have a mindset that they are responsible for the outcome of everything. So they have to be involved in the decision-making to some extent, training, clarity, uh, and, and that the buck stops with them, that they can't blame anybody else with excuses. And that theme runs throughout most of your business applications. It isn't about they have to do it. They just have to own the result. And that's an important distinction to make, Scott, definitely. Uh, it's, it's a great observation because if you try to do everything, if you if then, then everyone's just sitting back and saying, hey, boss, what do you want me to do? Then that's an ineffective team. That is centralized command, uh, which, which is the opposite of, of the key principle of decentralized command, where you've got leaders at every level that understand the mission, that are stepping up, making decisions, making things happen, solving problems at, at their level to get things done. So that is an important distinction to make. It, it just means that you are responsible for everything, that you don't have to do everything. And we get this question a lot, as, as I'm sure you probably do through your work at Franklin Covey. This is something that, uh, and, and it really stood out to me, someone asked this question uh, recently of Jocko as we were doing, doing some work together. Well, is it really the leader's fault? If the leader wasn't there and the leader didn't do this certain thing, it was just someone on the team who was down the chain, is it really the leader's fault? And they were basically getting to the premise of, of the, the chapter we wrote about, no bad teams, only bad leaders. Well, is, is that really true? And we use the example of uh, Navy ships, uh, which is which is something we learned, you know, in, in, the, in studying leadership. When I was reading the Seven Habits uh, of Highly Effective People back in the Naval Academy, for the commanding officer of a Navy ship, if the ship runs aground, the commanding officer is going to get relieved. That that is that is uh, almost certainly what's going to happen, even if that commanding officer was not on the bridge wing at the time. And the reason it's so important for that. Uh, for, for that uh, commanding officer, for the leader to understand that he, ha he has total ownership of that is if you really feel like it's not your, your fault, if you really feel like, well, it's not really me, it's, it's really my team, and I can cast blame there, then you're never actually going to do the hard work necessary to train your people, to mentor your people, to, to get them where they need to be, to, to make the, the tough decision to maybe let somebody on the team go who's a perpetual underperformer and, and dragging the team down. You're not going to make those kind of tough decisions if you really feel, well, it's not really my fault. I can I can kind of hide behind some excuses and say, well, it was them. Uh, it, it wasn't me. If you have the attitude of, no, it's my fault. I'm responsible for everything that happens within my team, within my organization. Then you do the hard work. You you, you make sure your people are trained and ready uh, to, to, to take on problems and solve those problems. And that builds a team of, of decentralized command where you have leaders that are stepping up making things happen, making recommendations, even, even where their leader says, you know, realizes, hey, this is above my pay grade to make this decision or dedicate this resource. They're at least, they're making a recommendation up the chain of here's a way I think we can solve this problem. Not, not my decision to make, but here's, here's a course of action that I think could, could help us, which obviously makes the, the big boss's decision super easy when you have a team of, of leaders at every level that are stepping up to lead. Leif, I think it's fair to say that in some people's careers, including mine, with some longevity comes some complacency uh, around responsibility. And it becomes easier to blame others, not sell them out, but to say, have an attitude of, well, I had nothing to do with that. And I think your book, even for me, shocked me back into 
this extreme ownership mindset. I also liked in your book the formula of how you and your co-author Jocko kind of um, oscillate between authoring chapters. In the opening chapter, which Jocko opens with, he shares a story that I call kind of the blue-on-blue -blue incident. And by the way, I have no military background. I never served in the military. My father was in the National Guard. But I got a crash course on military acronyms. Let me tell you, it was a bit of an effort just to keep track. But would you share in some detail your co-author's story about the blue-on-blue -blue incident in Ramadi? And what was the theme of the leadership lesson learned about the leader owns it at the end of the day? Absolutely. First of all, just for everybody's understanding, blue on blue is a friendly fire scenario. What that means is we have U.S. forces shooting at U.S. forces or our coalition partners, whether it be the British or, or uh, Iraqi forces that work alongside, and we're actually shooting at each other. And this is uh, it's, it's the worst case scenario for, for a military unit. It's, it's, it's terrible to be killed or horribly wounded by the enemy on the battlefield, but it's so much worse if you're killed or horribly wounded by your own guys who, who mistakenly you know, thought you were bad guys or you, do the, you, know, you mistakenly shoot and kill your own guys uh, that, that you thought were bad guys. So it's, it's kind of the worst scenario possible. And that, if you'd ask young Lieutenant Leif Babin when I was the Charlie Platoon Commander, you know, the 16 SEALs, uh, and, and working for Jocko and Tasking and Bruiser before we deployed in the spring of 2006 to Ramadi, if you'd asked me, hey, do you think you guys will get in a blue on blue situation? My answer would have been never happen to us. That'll never happen to us. That only happens to losers who don't, you know, who, who uh, don't plan right or uh, aren't paying attention to what's going on. And the reality was we realized very quickly when we got to Ramadi in this violent urban environment, Blue on blue scenarios were just an absolute reality and it happened to us all the time. It happened to us all the time. And we had to be prepared for it, uh, that it was going to happen. If we didn't expect it was gonna happen, then we would never be able to, we wouldn't take the, the extreme uh, measures necessary to, to mitigate risk. And the, the situation we wrote about in that chapter was we, we were very early in the deployment. We'd only been on the ground for I think two or three weeks at that point. Uh, this was this was we were very new there in this violent terrorist stronghold of Ramadi. It was totally controlled by insurgents, and our seals were were working with Iraq. Our, our job was to train and, and work with Iraqi soldiers. We were also working alongside a great unit of uh, U.S. soldiers. There was some National Guard there as well. There were Marines there as well, um, and and so we we had this this huge effort that was going on, and, and our seal. Uh, our SEAL element put in a small group of guys with Iraqi soldiers in, in what we call a sniper overwatch position. So you put those guys in there to uh, to try to help mitigate the extreme risk to the U.S. soldiers, Marines, and the Iraqi soldiers that were clearing through a really violent neighborhood. And long story short, what happened was our guys had to move position uh, to, to, to a new position. They were unable to make radio communications to tell uh, to, to back to, to, to the headquarters element to tell uh, to tell them where the new position was uh, an Iraqi unit with their U.S. advisors was out of their sector, uh, and 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 it just happened to be the perfect storm where they got in a giant firefight with each other, thinking that uh, the, the the Iraqis thought those were bad guys in the building. Our guys thought they were being attacked by enemy fighters. This was right at at at, uh, at first light when you couldn't really use night vision, and but you couldn't really see with with uh, you know with, with your with the naked eye uh, because there wasn't enough light. So it was it was a horrible situation that we got in, uh, and we had we had a, one of our guys wounded. Thankfully, it wasn't 
uh, it wasn't wasn't terribly, but we had a, a horribly Iraqi soldier killed and several more wounded, and it could have been a disaster, disastrous scenario. This was an embarrassment for us. This was a black eye for us. It was it was the worst thing that we could imagine uh, to happen. And of course, when it happened, we started getting emails from from our our other SEAL units that were in the country. What the heck happened here? What's going on over there with you guys? What are we doing? You know, what's what's happening? Our commanding officer had said, "Hey, shut down operations. I want to know how this happened. We're going to make sure that you know we're we're going to we're going to find out what what happened here." And frankly, we knew that probably somebody would get fired over that. So we uh, we had to stand down operations, and we had to actually figure out how this happened, break down all the all, all the all the different uh, things that had happened. And it was a huge snowball effect of a dozen different things that happened uh, that, that just happened to compound on each other to cause that problem. And Jocko, as our task unit commander in charge of our forty plus seals and sixty support personnel, realized just before we briefed the commanding officer and the investigating officer, he realized, hey. This is my fault. I'm the commander, and the reason this happened uh, is because of me. And, and and he knew that that was the reality. I had not been on that operation. I was back uh, cover, covering for Jocko, but I was sitting in that room when we called everybody together. Jocko stood up in front of, front of the uh, in front of the room, and all our seals were sitting there. And he said, "Let's talk about why this happened." Who's at fault? He asked that question of the whole room. And we saw different guys go around the room. You know, the, the SEAL said, I should have been, I should have had better positive identification of targets. The, the, the radio men said, hey, I should have, I should have made sure that we made radio communications. I should have marked our position better. Uh, the, the guys who have been with the Iraqi soldiers on their side said, we should have done a better job of making sure they were in sector. We went around the room, around the room, and Jocko, to every single one of them said, negative, it's not your fault. This is my fault. I'm the commander. I'm the task unit commander. I'm responsible, and we are going to make sure that nothing like this ever happens again. And to see him do that, this is one of the things that keeps people from actually stepping up and taking ownership. Jocko had not been in that position when they got in a firefight with, with Iraqi forces uh, and their U.S. counterparts. He, he hadn't even been there. He wasn't, we knew he wasn't the guy who uh, was actually doing, doing the shooting or had not communicated on the radio. But to see him take ownership of that was dumbfounding for us. It was, it was just a recognition that that is what we must do. And so often leaders don't want to do that. They don't want to take ownership because they think people are going to lose their respect. Uh, people lose respect for me. And the reality is when a leader makes excuses and, and blames other people, if Jago had done that to all the guys that were trying to take ownership, then we'd have lost respect for him. We'd have all lost respect for him. The other reason people don't want to do that is because they don't want to get fired. And yet... It's so, much, it's so much easier to fire someone who's making excuses, casting blame. You know they're never going to change their behavior. But it's so much harder to fire someone who actually says, this is my fault, and here's what I'm going to do to make sure this doesn't happen again. So we learned that lesson. And for Jocko to demonstrate that, everybody in the room realized, I've got to take that same kind of ownership of the team that I'm in charge of, whether it's large or small, all the way down to the frontline trooper who's not in charge of anybody else but just himself and his, his piece of the mission. And so at every level, we had people that were solving problems. We, we went through in detail uh, what we could do to prevent this from happening. We learned those lessons. We presented them to everybody else. We shared that with, with everybody else in the task unit. And, and taking the lessons from that, we made sure going forward that that, would, that, that, that never happened again. And even though we still, there were times when we got shot at mistakenly by, by U.S. forces, or Iraqi forces, we could immediately stop that from happening before it ever got out of control. 
uh, and, and it really saved lives on the battlefield. I think we'd have lost a whole bunch of guys otherwise had we not learned that lesson. One quick point too on this, Scott. Interestingly enough, we talk about it's hard to take ownership. And Jocko will tell you this now. When we started writing this book, the initial first chapter was no bad teams, only bad leaders. And I said, you know what? I really think the most powerful example of extreme ownership is when you stood up in that room and took ownership of that horrible blue on blue situation. And, and Jocko didn't want to write that chapter. He didn't want to write that chapter. It was, it was, it was a black eye for us. It was a difficult thing to talk about. And I, finally we talked about it. He realized, okay, I'll, uh, I, I understand where Lake's coming from here. Let's, uh, let's give it a shot. He wrote the chapter. Uh, and, and to me, it's the most powerful part of the book. Just yeah. this, yeah. Talking about this horrible situation that that was an embarrassment for us that should have never happened, but the recognition of just how easily uh, it, it could and would happen if leaders at every level didn't step step up and take ownership in order to make it happen. And I think it's uh, it really just sets the tone for the entire book and, and gives the example of how, as a leader, you really and truly have to own it all. And that is the most critical thing for the success of, of your team. Completely agree, Leif. Well said. Your, your co-author, Jocko, is uh, probably uh, the beneficiary of your wise counsel on that because that first chapter really lets the reader stand back and say, "What well, I have done the same thing. Have I done the same thing? Am I doing that? Am I taking ownership for ultimately the success, or more importantly, in this case, the, the challenge of the, um, the initiative? You know, the book has 12 chapters. Your chapters are extreme ownership, no bad teams, only bad leaders, believe, as in like believe in the mission, check your ego, cover and move, simple, prioritize, execute, and about four or five others. I want to take a few moments and, and dig deep into chapter six, which you call simple. It's really about the, the beauty, the imperativeness, if you will, of simplification. But first, you have a concept in the opening chapter that you call the tortured genius that I thought was so relevant to the business world. In fact, I was shocked throughout the book for two guys that have had mainly their career be in the military, how relevant and insightful all of your business applications were. Talk a bit about this concept that we all find ourselves in called the tortured genius. Well, I think we've, we've all been tortured geniuses at times. I know certainly I have. And the, the torture genius was, was a, a term that was coined by a good friend of mine in the SEAL teams when you know, we had one of our, our teammates going through training who would, who would want to ask a question uh, of, of the instructor staff. And we know, that, you know, if, if you ask a question that doesn't seem relevant to the instructor staff when you go through SEAL training, you're going to get hammered. Right? And what that means is everyone's going to get dropped for push-ups. You're going to have to run back and forth in the surf zone. And we tell them, hey, don't do that. And he would do it anyway. And, and of course, we'd all get hammered. So, and it was, it was just... Uh, it was a great, great uh, label to, to put on someone who sees, well, everyone can see the flaws in what I'm doing, but, but to that person, they just, you know, to the rest of the world, my, the, the, my, my, my shortcomings are clear, uh, but they just can't see the genius of what I'm doing. And that really just comes from a person who, who is uh, unable to check their ego, is unable to detach uh, from, you know, from their own perspective and see the world through kind of everyone else's eyes, the world as it is and not just from their individual perspective and say, okay, let me actually think, are we doing the right thing here? Am I just trying to, 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 to uh, go with this plan to prove I'm right? Uh, because torture geniuses are, are really, uh, can, can be a, a real problem in any organization. And, and that's when we see leaders get fired in the SEAL teams, it's always, it, it's never because they're tactically unsound. It's never because they're not physically fit. It's never because they're, they're not competent. It's always because 
they can't check their ego. It's because they, they won't take ownership. They, they, they won't accept valid constructive criticism when, it, when it's necessary. And the rest of the world can see like, absolutely, there's some things you need to fix. And, uh, and, and so I, I think it's a term that, that, that applies. And when you, you can recognize that in someone uh, and point it out to them, oftentimes you, you can allow them to see that in themselves so that uh, they, can, they can fix that and drive on. And if they can't, that, that person's really unfixable and it might be somebody that you're just going to have to uh, eventually let go and, and uh, hire somebody else that can do their job for them. Lee, if I could have closed my eyes and pointed to any chapter in the book to go deeper on, because they're all extraordinarily relevant, I, I highly recommend that every one of the C-suite read this entire book. In fact, maybe like read a chapter a night for 12 nights so that really sinks in and that you take some time, like I've done, to bring some introspection to say, you know, I might've been good at that, but I've slipped from that. And my ego has gotten in the way or my complacency. It's a, probably a good book to read every year to kind of realign everybody with the um, extreme ownership philosophy. But I do want to go deep into six as I think six has a remarkable relevance in the business world. And it basically this idea around the value of simplicity and how easy it is, the more educated we are, the more competent, the more senior we are to move away from the value of simplicity. I think there's some correlation in your longevity and your need to complicate, your need to add ideas on. Leif, would you take a couple of moments? I'd like you to both share the, the combat story and what resulted in the lack of simplicity or what could have resulted in more complexity. And then I thought actually the compensation discussion in this manufacturing firm was sort of like you know Seth Godin, the famed you know, bloggist and speaker and author. Seth kind of writes these blogs every day that are just unbelievably insightful about what's going on in every organization. And your chapter does the same thing. It's like, gosh, were you here at our last compensation meeting? Because even at Franklin Covey, our comp plans, I think, are way too complicated. I'm sure I've offended my members of the executive team, but we do overcomplicate stuff. Talk about the military example, and then would you share and illuminate the compensation complexity, and maybe end with why it is so important that leaders move off their intellect, their experience, and simplify, simplify, simplify. Absolutely, Scott. I I, you've hit on a huge point here, and, and it's, uh, it's a common problem that we see. And even though uh, there's, there's, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of terms that have been out there for a long time, and then I, I, I grew up uh, reading military books that, that talked about the keep it simple, stupid, you know, the KISS principle. Yep. Uh, so, so people, they know that, and they talk about it, and they pay it lip service, and yet they create complexity in, in, in everything that they do. And, and, and with a business case, it's just like the, the, the military – it's inherently complex in what you're doing. When you're talking about, you know, for a military operation, for folks that haven't served in the military, when you're talking about multiple units on the battlefield, you know, Army, Marine Corps, uh, SEAL teams, you know, other special operators, different radio nets, different uh, standard operating procedures, different ways of doing things, uh, aircraft overhead, uh, sometimes multiple layers of aircraft, people moving and not. You got you got the enemy who doesn't uh, who who gets a vote and can and you can't actually fully predict what they're going to do. You can only kind of kind of kind of guess, you know, based on the info that you have. So things are incredibly complex. It's just the world that we live in. But the problem is when you build complexity into your plans, when when you communicate in a way that's not simple, clear, and concise, people can't execute. People are unable to execute. And this is it's one of the, the chief things that we see go wrong uh, on, on the battlefield. And that story was, was a great example. We had a, we had a leader that it was a, uh, a U.S. Army 
uh, officer who was in charge of, of some Iraqi soldiers, and he was going to go out on a patrol in a really dangerous area of Ramadi. And he'd been in an area of Iraq that wasn't near as volatile or as dangerous as, as Ramadi was uh, in 2006. So he'd just come you know, from those areas, and he didn't really have a full understanding of just how dangerous and, and bad it was going to be. And he put together a really complex plan to patrol across the city uh, that, that, that they are almost certainly were going to be attacked. Uh, and he thought the plan was simple. Hey, we're just going to go from this point A you know, to this point B without recognizing how many battle spaces he was crossing over. So you're going from U.S. Army battle space to a different a Marine battle space back into U.S. Army battle space. So you have to coordinate with all those different units. Uh, you know, the, the, them sending out appropriate action force is going to be difficult. And Jocko was able to talk him into, hey, why don't we simplify this plan? Why don't you just do a very short patrol within this one little battle space? And thank God that Jocko did that. We sent some SEALs out with uh, with his Iraqi soldiers as well to, to protect those guys and make sure that they were they weren't uh, getting in deeper than than they could. Uh, but they had they they patrol out the camp and within 12 minutes they got in a huge firefight. They got pinned down by enemy forces, uh, and it was uh, it, it was it, thank God that. Uh, that uh, it wasn't a worse situation because it, it, had they gone much deeper in enemy territory, we may have not been able to even get to them. But the tanks uh, from the U.S. Army Company that owned that area were able to get out there and, and stop that problem from happening. So uh, when he came back, I think that, that, that officer recognized, hey, that was, a, that was a complex plan. Thank God that we actually uh, kept it simple. And, and really the, the lesson there was not to point fingers at that guy because I, I often oversimplified uh, or often overcomplicated things all the time. And didn't simplify enough as a, as a young leader in the SEAL teams. This is one of the toughest lessons I had to learn. And the the real frustration you often get with people is is that they're not doing what I told them to do. Why aren't they doing that? So even in training as a young SEAL officer, we put together a mission. We go out on the training battlefield, and things would just fall apart. And I felt like, well, I communicated the plan. I told everybody what to do. They all knew what their roles were. They understood what the mission was. Why in the world did this uh, did this thing fall apart? And it, it, it's really easy to get angry and frustrated with your team. And thank God that I had some great mentors in, in the SEAL teams like Jocko, who could take me under, under his wing and say, "All right, why are your why is your team not doing what you what you asked them to do? Is it because they're stupid? Well, of course not. These are very smart guys. They're very smart. They're they're uh, some of them are a lot smarter than I am. So uh, they're certainly not stupid. Is it because they just don't care? Uh, and they don't want to win? Of course not. Of course they want to win. Of course they care. Uh, so why is it that they're not doing what you asked them to do? And, and, and the answer is clearly is because they didn't understand. So the real test for whether or not that you, a plan is simple enough, whether or not you've communicated in a manner that's simple, clear, and concise, is that they get it. And if they get it, if your team gets it, if they understand it, then you've done that correctly. If they don't get it, then, then you haven't done that correctly. And it, it's, it's oftentimes, I mean, that, that case really stood out to us in the business world for, for the uh, compensation plan you know, from, uh, from, from the chapter there because we're working with that company. It's something that we see all the time. And, you know, at, at, the, at the highest levels of leadership, the CEO and the CFO, they've, they've come up, you know, maybe some of the department heads, they came up with a plan that they thought was brilliant. This is a great way to incentivize people to go out and do the hard work. And we're going to pay them bonuses based on this or that. And yet... Nobody understands it down at the frontline troop level, at the frontline leader level. Nobody understands it. And it's, it's frustrating to them. They don't get it. They don't understand it. So how can you incentivize people to do work when they don't understand it, when it doesn't work? So uh, it's, it's, a, it's oftentimes just the recognition that it doesn't matter how 
simple it is in, in, in my mind. Of course you understand it. If you're the leader, you're, you're privy to a lot more strategic information than your troops are. And you know, I think it's pretty standard practice that if you think your team gets it this much, you know, they actually get it about that yeah. much. Right. Uh, and that's just, that's just, that is just kind of the standard condition. I think if a leader understands that, then uh, they're going to, they're going to be set up for success uh, a lot better in life. The way to fix that problem is, is to ask people, is to ask them. And it's not just saying, Hey, do you get it? Do you understand? Because people are always going to say yes, but it's to ask somebody in the military, we call it a readback where you're, you're, you're saying, okay, we just talked about the mission. Talk me through this, this particular aspect of the mission. Let's say the escape and evasion plan. What are you going to do if you're out there on your own? Uh, and how are you going to signal? When are you going to expect U.S. forces to come and link up with you? Where are they going to come link up with you? Talk me through that plan. And then you're going to know right away that the, the people get it uh, or they don't get it. And if, they're, if you're getting blank stares and they're not able to tell you that, instead of getting mad at them, then you actually need to look at yourself and say, okay, obviously I wasn't clear about how I communicated this plan. And I know if this person doesn't know it, then probably everybody else on the team doesn't know it either. So that's really the test. If you can, communication, simple, clear, concise, plans have to be simple. And, and if people understand them, uh, then they're going to be able to execute. But if people don't understand, they can't execute. And as a leader, you've got to make sure uh, that, that uh, you do that correctly. Leif, I think the business case study in chapter six around Simplify is worth the book alone, because I believe there is a bit of an inverse correlation and um, how high you are up in the organization and your ability to simplify because you've had all this field of experience and a frame of reference and all your schools of experience and education. And by nature, I think we like to complicate things to maybe to validate our existence or such. I, I rarely see a senior leader in our client organizations who, um, who travel light. And when I say that, I mean I used to work for a gentleman here who never carried a briefcase, didn't carry any folders around, no PowerPoints. And I think a lot of people saw him as a bit unprepared, but he was so confident and competent in his area of stewardship, he didn't need you know, a trove of stuff to carry to every meeting because he knew in his mind and was able to talk in very plain spoken language. I think some people found him to be fairly unsophisticated, but he was such a master communicator and I think also his level of self-confidence and humility allowed him to simplify and not have to be tied to that ego of, do I sound smart? I, we see that all the time, Scott. It's, it's, a, it's a constant problem. I, I, I think what drives that is a failure to see the world from other people's perspective. It, yeah. It's really hard for us to do that as, as human beings. Uh, it, it's, we see the world through our eyes. What do you mean no one understands this? Of course they understand it. It's so clear in my mind. How could they not understand it? And, and I think it's, it's one of the, the big recognitions for me. When I was running the, the, we call it the junior officer training course for all SEAL officers graduating from our pipeline, one of the things that we would do, we'd, we'd go out on field training exercises. And that's where we would put them in kind of a, a, a full mission profile uh, uh, mission tasking and training. So we give these guys, it was rubber weapon shapes. They don't even have real, real weapons with them, but they're just carrying these rubber weapon shapes that are heavy and, and uh, just, just to, to kind of go through the motions of that. It was more focused on planning and leadership. What I loved about that though, was it got a, it, it, was, it was a great opportunity to give officers who never otherwise had this perspective, the perspective of the machine gunner, 
the perspective of the, the radioman, the perspective of the point man, the perspective of the rear security guy. Because so often as an officer, you're, you're on a patrol and let's say you're, you're on a patrol that's going multiple kilometers over rugged terrain. It's nighttime. Guys are carrying a bunch of heavy gear. They're carrying the, the machine gun and, you know, et cetera. And those guys have no idea what is going on. They have no idea what's going on. So as a leader, I know exactly where I am. I'm looking at my GPS. I'll, we'll stop and form up a perimeter often and, and we'll do a map study. So, so myself and the point man and like the assistant patrol leader are able to, to look at the map and understand where, where everybody is. The other guys are just, they're just for, they're going for a hike and they have no idea whether it's another 45 minutes or whether we're five minutes away from the target and where we get to go, when they can take a break. Uh, there's no end in sight. And that's very, very difficult for, for people. So the best leaders, once you recognize how frustrating it is to be the last guy in the patrol, where you're, you're stumbling and tripping out in the dark, carrying all this heavy gear and having no idea you know, where you're going, it is, is you recognize, hey, I've got to pass the word to those guys. I've got to make sure, let me think about it from their perspective. All right, guys, we're about 500 meters from the target. We should be there in the next five to 10 minutes. Uh, you know, just stand by. It's, it, it's, uh, it, it's up here in this direction. If you're just giving people just a general overview about where they are and, and, and where they're going, they don't have to have your insider detail strategic knowledge at the CEO level. But they definitely need to, to have some insight into the strategic picture. And again, they're not going to get it unless you tell them. I think once leaders recognize that they will not understand it, that's the only thing you can be certain of. They will not understand any of that strategic insight uh, and, and have any grasp of that unless you tell them. And that is your job as a leader to train and educate them. They don't have to have all your knowledge, but to give them the perspective that they need to understand. And a leader who can communicate to the frontline troops in a way that they get and understand is, is the best leader. And that's, again, back to that test of whether or not they get it. And it sounds like that leader that, that you're talking about who, who walked around without you know, his PowerPoint presentations and laptops or, uh, or phones, if he was able to communicate to the troops what they needed to know, he was an effective leader. And at the end of the day, we say there's only two measures that matter, effective and ineffective. <laughs> so that's all that matters. You're an effective leader. Keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. Lay final few moments. Um, what advice would you give to the 95% of Americans that aren't involved or haven't served in the military? When we encounter someone in uniform or perhaps someone who's retired from the service, what advice would you give us socially on how to honor them, how to thank them? <coughs> Pardon me. Is there a protocol that you would like the rest of us to know how we can express our appreciation? Look, I think most Americans are great patriotic people who uh, constantly thank military members for their service. Uh, and that's that's generally uh, what, what I see. So uh, I think there's no problem in doing that. Uh, I think that means a lot to uh, uh, that means a lot to those of us that have served. And I think that the recognition that, you know, the, the guys that we lost, Mark Lee, Ryan Joe, Mike Montsour, you know, from, from my task unit, so many others from every branch of the military that gave their lives to service. Uh, of our country, I think just the recognition that they're not forgotten, and there's there's so many ways to honor folks. Uh, I think that that means it's up. And similarly, for the 99.9 percent .9 of Americans that will never meet an Iraqi citizen, after having lived there, fought with them, saved lives, uh, hopefully expanded their rights and freedoms, what would you like to say to all of our viewers around what you learned about the Iraqi culture and the Iraqi people? We had a unique, we had a unique uh, opportunity to engage with the Iraqi people uh, and, and spend a lot of time with them going into these areas that have been completely occupied by, by the insurgents uh, for years, where we had zero coalition presence in 2006. And I think 
the, the, the recognition that I saw that I think was different from a lot of Americans' perspective just watching the news was that uh, they were happy to have us there to rid them of, of the evil of those insurgents who ruled over them with this reign of torture and terror. And, and uh, you know, it, it was the precursor to, to ISIS, uh, you know, the, the Islamic State. And, uh, you know, what do most Iraqi people want? They want to live their lives in peace. They want to raise their families. You know, they want to put a new addition onto their house. They want to expand their business uh, and, and their market share. And I think just giving them the opportunity to do that. Uh, if, if you, when you ask them, you know, what they wanted from us, it was, uh, it was to help them, you know, rid that city of the scourge of the insurgency that was just, you know, just these brutal, horrible people uh, who, who would spare nothing to, to intimidate, you know, and rule with fear. Uh, but we, uh, we got along great with uh, the, the vast majority of Iraqi people that we encountered. I'm proud of our work there. Uh, and I certainly do it again in a heartbeat. In your book, it makes clear, and you even call out the somewhat um, naivete of the American public, even people like me who perhaps followed it quite closely, how naive we were to what really happened and the horrors of war. Your book is extraordinarily. As we end, I wanted you to talk a little bit about Echelon Front. This is the company that you and your co-author, Jocko, have formed. Talk somewhat about uh, what your mission is, how you help organizations, and how can people get in touch with you at Echelon Front? Yeah, our company's called Echelon Front. It's, it's, uh, we launched, launched it back in uh, 2011. And uh, it, it is uh, a, lot, a lot like what you guys do. It's, we're, we're a much smaller organization, obviously, than, than, than what you do at Franklin Covey. But uh, our job, our mission is to train leaders, is to empower leaders, help them solve problems through leadership, and take the lessons that we learned on the battlefield, uh, as we've just been discussing, and be able to apply that to any situation uh, so, so they can solve problems and win. And uh, anybody who wants to contact us can contact us at echelonfront.com. That's our website. And uh, we're uh, happy to work with, uh, with anybody out there. Certainly proud to be associated with uh, the great work that you guys are doing at, uh, at Franklin Covey. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm most proud of our work with, with Extreme Ownership when I see uh, over the last few years that with the success of, of, of uh, Extreme Ownership, anywhere where it's, it's listed on a, a list of leadership books that have been impactful uh, in, in the same realm as uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I'm blown away by that. Uh, it's incredibly humbling to, to see that. And, uh, and, and for us, it's, it's just about, about helping people and delivering impact. Leif, the respect is mutual. In fact, both of your books are on our wall, which is a pretty good um, standard for us. In fact, I had not read the second one, The Dichotomy of Leadership. Give us a moment on how is the second book, which I'm going to read next, different from the first? Yeah, ab absolutely. The dichotomy of leadership is uh, is the is, is we we put the black and white on the cover there because to try to try to define that leadership isn't just black and white. If if this problem, then do this. It's actually there's a lot of gray, and it's trying to find the balance between these two opposing forces. We talk about being default aggressive. You need to be aggressive to solve problems. Problems aren't going to solve themselves. You actually have to 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 uh, lean forward to solve those problems, and yet you can be too aggressive. You can, you, can, you can get way too aggressive, get way out ahead of your skis uh, on something, you know, spend too much capital, hire too many people on board, uh, put too much faith in, in, a, in a new product launch or, or service launch, uh, and, and that can cause all kinds of problems for, for your business down, down the road. Same thing on the battlefield. So the dichotomy is about learning how to balance these things. And we, we uh, introduced the dichotomy in Chapter 12 of Extreme Ownership, but we realized that we needed to dive much deeper into these things. But, because it's the most common problems that we see with leaders who read extreme ownership, love the idea, are trying to 
take ownership of everything in their world. And yet, just as you pointed out at the beginning of this interview, that, that if you try to own, if you try to do everything, certainly you're responsible for everything. Uh, and in that way you own it. But if you try to do everything, you're going to fail. That, that's a centralized organization. So, so you can actually take too much ownership and everyone just leaning on you to make all the decisions and solve all the problems. And that doesn't work. So the, the idea is that you've got to find balance and the dichotomy leadership really, really gives examples of going too far in either direction. And it's the same format as extreme ownership, giving a combat example with, with the, uh, the uh, expanded upon that principle and then applying it to the business world. And of course, now, uh, as, as we wrote that four years after extreme ownership, we have a whole lot more uh, experience in the business world, working with hundreds of companies across the, the prospect of, of industries. Leif, congratulations to you and Jocko on two extraordinary books. And congrats to you and your wife, your parents of a new third child arrival. What's it like to be the son or daughter of a Navy SEAL? <laughs> How easy is that? Uh, I'm, I'm sure people would tell, uh, tell you it's super easy. Look, I, I certainly can be, uh, uh, you know, I try to be a disciplinarian where I need to be. But again, that's, that's about finding balance as well. If you try to be, you try to impose too much discipline, you're going to have your kids that rebel against that because my kids uh, are part of, you know, my, they have my DNA and uh, I am as hard-headed a guy as, as there is. So uh, I, I see that and I, I, I have a newfound respect for my parents and the challenges that uh, they raised me. But I realize that so many of these, these concepts we're talking about, they apply to parenting as well. And, you know, if, if you want to blame your kids for, for not understanding something that you said uh, was clear to them, you know, that concept of simple, if they get it and understand it, uh, you know, the, 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 the test of whether you've done that right is they get it and understand it. So I've got to be able to explain something to a three-year-old or a four-year-old in a way that they're going to get it and understand it. If I just say, hey, don't do this because you're going to get punished, um, then oftentimes when, when I'm not there, when I'm not saying over the shoulder, they're going to do it anyway. But if I can explain the why behind it and they understand, hey, dad's telling me not to do this because he doesn't want me to get hurt and he's explained that to me and I understand that I'll get hurt, they're a lot more likely to do that even when I'm not looking over their shoulder. So I, I think these leadership is leadership is leadership. It applies to parenting. It applies to yeah, the military well battlefield. It applies to, to the business world equally. Leif, thank you for your time. Thank you for your book. Mostly thank you for your service to our nation. We appreciate you joining us today for On Leadership. Thank you, Scott. Great to be with you. Our honor. Thanks for joining us. Fascinating conversation. Pick up a copy, of course, of Extreme Ownership. The, uh, the structure of the book is probably, arguably, the best structured leadership book I've ever read. The, the, the compelling connection between the military examples and your business life will be shockingly relevant to you. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you back here next week for a new interview, interview on Franklin Covey's On Leadership.